You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. First Samuel chapter 22 is what we're going to be looking at today, but we're going to really pick up right where we left off last week. Um, last week, you, you knew maybe it was a very interesting chapter for you. Uh, some of the things that we looked at with David found himself at wit's end, and uh, he pretended insanity. Do you remember that passage? Uh, some of you weren't here last week. You better listen to that one. It's a pretty exciting passage. Uh, he's foaming at the mouth, spittle down his beard, all this craziness. He's pretending insanity. He escapes. And uh, he, he's escaping the, the grasp of, of Saul in many ways and, and the enemies there in Gath. And then we find him alone in a cave. And that's where we're going to pick up the story and we're going to kind of rehash some of those things in the first five verses here and as we walk through this passage. But we ended last week in the, in the psalm that David wrote while he was in the cave, Psalm 57. Remember, he wrote Psalm 57 while he's in the cave there and he, he writes this saying, ultimately, you know, in the... I'm going to seek refuge and safety in the shadow of your wings. And we see this cave as that way where it's this shelter for David. And yet David finds himself at wit's end, like I said. And God sends him friends and family to encourage him and then leads him on his way. And so we're going to be examining that today. But if we look in 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, So David, and I'll be reading from the CSB today. Uh, it's very similar to the ESV. I just really enjoy the translation of that, of that translation for this chapter in particular. I think it brings some real clarity to it for you today. But First Samuel chapter 22 says, So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brother and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, and discontented. I love that. Every, every man who was desperate, in debt, and discontented. I, I won't ask you to raise your hand if that's you today. <laughs> uh, but they all rallied around him, and he became their leader. The word there is even commander. About 400 men were with him. Again, this is the start of his army or the, the mighty men of David. Verse 3, from there David went to Mizpah of Moab, where he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. So he left them in the care of the king of Moab. And they stayed with him the whole time David was in the stronghold. Verse 5, the prophet of Gad, or the prophet Gad said to David, don't stay in this stronghold. Leave and return to the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Hereth. We'll look at the rest of the chapter as we come. Uh, but I want to just focus in on these first five verses to start. We, I, I referenced some of these last Sunday, but I wanted, it just came at me again this week, and I couldn't get by it, and I wanted to really go over it. For this passage has actually been encouraging my heart this week. The first is this thing that sticks out to me is this the 400, the mighty force that David is being given, is this young fledgling army. And, and David becomes this commander, uh, this, this leader of this ragtag group of misfits, really. Uh, everybody who was uh, desperate in debt and discontented come to him. 
And then he begins to train them, becomes a leader, a commander. Like I said, Chuck Swindoll writes, it's almost as if like a, David's this Robin Hood kind of a character. Is that kind of striking you a little bit? He says, David becomes a sort of Robin Hood where his Sherwood forest was the rugged Judean wilderness here in the cave of Adullam with its mountains, its caves, its deep rivers. And yet there he commanded a group of mavericks <laughs> because God wanted him to become a maverick king. And Israel would never see another king like David. And here is where we begin to see him being formed into this leader that's going to be taking and leading the people of Israel into war and, and, and fighting and yet being a king that leads the people. And yet these 400 men, these, these desperate people, this word is distressed, people who were literally, the word could be described as people who are under pressure, under stress. Again, I won't have you raise your hand. <laughs> But my week was certainly felt like that this last week. A variety of things in life came up and certain times feel stressful. Feels like you're under pressure. You feel like you were David, last chapter, at wit's end. You're almost feeling like you're going insane. You don't know what to do. You find yourself in debt. Literally, you can't pay the bills. <laughs> you are in debt. You find yourself discontented. The ESV, when it writes, it says, these are the people who find themselves bitter in soul as a result of being mistreated or wronged. People have been harmed. People have been abused. This is the condition of the nation at that time. For Saul is the king, the leader at that time, and he's weighing laced to, he, he's, he's laying waste to the nation. I did that the other week, and now I can't, I keep, I keep that dyslexic, you know. But this idea here is just incredible. These people, desperate, debt, distressed, coming to David for help. Uh, the, the, the parallels are, are striking. But before we get into the parables of how this, this really connects to, to Jesus, I'm going to show you this aspect of Moab. Again, a, a section that I kind of skipped over last week, and even as I was reading it, it didn't strike me as it does this week. Look at verses 3 through 5. David went to Mizpah, to Moab. And there's just this situation where it seems like he gives his parents are needing shelter and safety. And so he asks the king of Moab, you know, would you take my, my parents for safety? Would you, would you help them? And so the king of Moab says yes, and we move on. And when I began to think about this situation, what's going on here, Moab is ultimately operating as an enemy to the people of Israel at this time. David is going to his enemy, this place, to seek refuge for his parents and yet it's striking, because if you know who David's family line is from, it's very important. If you remember the very beginning of this series, we looked at the book of Judges. Do you remember that? We even looked at the person of Ruth. Ruth 1.1 says, during the time of the Judges, there was a famine in the land. It's the beginning of Ruth. And a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab. For a little while. Ruth 1.4, it says, Elimelech and Naomi were those people that left and they went to Moab. They had two sons and those sons took Moabite wives. The two Moabite wives were Orpah and Ruth. But eventually the, the husbands died tragically and the three women were left widowed, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. And they returned back to the nation of Israel. They turned back to Judah, desperate needing food, needing shelter, hungry and alone. 
And there they find themselves returning to the town of Bethlehem, to the land of Judah. And now we see a great reversal in this storyline, where we see David reversing the storyline of Ruth. So he's in the land of Judah, the promised land. He then goes to Moab, seeking shelter and safety in a very desperate situation. His parents, who have Moabite blood, you could say, through Ruth, is the great-grandmother of David. And this great-grandmother of David, they go and they say to this king of Moab, who then shelters them and brings them in and protects them. And it, to me, there's just so many parallels in this storyline. There's so many parallels in the storyline of David and Jesus. Jesus here welcomes the foreigners, he, and he makes them citizens. <laughs> they, he, he harbors those who don't seem to belong. Is that not exactly what God does for you and for me? Jesus welcomes and encourages us into the promised land. We, we as the Gentiles outside of the covenant promise, we are welcomed in, grafted in, blessed in. We are receiving the great inheritance of the kingdom. We've received citizenship through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus conquers and breaks down the dividing wall of hostility and welcomes us in, shelters us, gives us a home. Ephesians 2 describes this. It says, so then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, those who are outside of the blessing, by those called the circumcised, which is done with flesh made by human hands. Verse 12 says, at that time you were without Christ, excluded, get the the language here, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and you are foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. And just like headed into the foreign land, the king of Moab, or Ruth being received into the line of, of David, and Ruth being a great, 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 great mother to Jesus himself, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made no effect the law consisting of the commands expressed in regulations so that he might create himself a new man from two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit through the Father. Get this, verse 19. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is the story of David. This is this parallel we see, and I want to continue on that line, this parallel of David here and the new David of Jesus Christ. For David is this prototype, this foreshadowing of the type of Jesus that is to come. David is called the anointed one, the Messiah. The word is, as Jesus Christ is Messiah here, and and it's the comparisons and foreshadowing and types that just jump off the page for us as we've been walking through this series. But it's this kingdom that David exemplifies a king. And yet, he's a king who doesn't look very kingly. He's a king in a cave running from the so-called king of Saul. He's a king 
who draws all kinds of people to him, poor, needy, indebted, stressed out. It's not the kind of army or fighting force that we would expect to really change the world. The ones in debt, the ones in distress, the discontented. And yet this is exactly what we see Jesus doing in the New Testament. Jesus proclaims his coming as a king who would be and would fulfill Isaiah 61. For in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it describes when Jesus steps up to the scroll and begins his public ministry in many ways, he he steps out and he quotes from Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim and to release the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that not sound like David in this cave, bringing all these kinds of people to him and and forming them into a force, a conquering force, a victorious force, a fighting force, this way of a king to bring good news to those in need. We we see this also in Jesus, and Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 5 where it says that they brought to Jesus in the end of chapter 4, where they brought to him all who were afflicted, all those who suffered from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the epileptics, and the paralytics. He healed them. Large crowds followed him. And the crowds followed him to the mountain. And then on that mountain, he sat down and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is a kind of king, a kind of king who gathers all kinds of desperate and needy people to him, people who recognize their need to be saved. For Jesus comes as a physician, a doctor for those who know that they are sick and in need to be healed. But he does not come for those, as he says to the Pharisees, who think that they have no need for a doctor. David is homeless at this time in 1 Samuel 22. He has no place to go. He's on the run in the wilderness, and he finds himself in a cave. And we find that Jesus is constantly moving from place to place. And for three years, Tim Chester says, he had no home. Jesus writes, or it's written about Jesus in Matthew 8, that foxes have dens and birds have nests, he says. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. David's in a cave, Jesus is in the wilderness, and then finds himself on a cross of all places. What a place for a king to be. David, suffering in this cave, to eventually rise as a commander of an army, he he takes on the debts, the distress, you could say, of these people who come to them, and he takes it away and gives them a new purpose, a new meaning in their life. He changes their allegiance and motivates them to follow him as their new king, to take their debts, pay for them to make way for a warrior, a conqueror, a king. And yet, Jesus has come to me. All you who weary and are broken, and I will give you rest. I will give you an identity and a purpose and a meaning. I will save your soul. Come to me, all you who are sinners. Come to me, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, sick, hungry, needy, helpless. Come to me. Let me take on your sin and your debts. Let me justify you. Let me save you. Let me pay for your sins that you would be alive and be set free. Jesus says, it's written of his work on the cross in Colossians 2. It says that that you were dead in your trespasses 
and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, he nailing it to the cross. The cross, like a cave, is a place of loneliness, suffering, a cave doesn't seem like a great place for a king or a commander. A cross doesn't seem like a great place for a king. It's the cross and the grave in which God displays his great power. And it's, and it's important for us to consider that this Jesus, this David, this, this king of ours <laughs> is a king that was born in a manger, rides in on a donkey, wears a crown of thorns and heads to a cross to then rise victorious over the, over the grave, over sin, and over death, to save the likes of you and me. I find that reflected in this passage. Is it striking to see David in this place, this place of welcoming, this place of salvation, this place of identity in God's anointed one? And then we... We flip the script and we totally transition to a completely different story. One of, of tone, I could say, in the storyline for David is this key figure being led by God, directed by God, welcoming in those who are in need. And then we flip in verse 6. We go to 1 Samuel chapter 22 and it changes quickly because we get to a paranoid, crazy person. You see, David was the one who faked insanity. Saul literally is insane. <laughs> 1 Samuel 22, verse 6, Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. And at that time, Saul was in Gibeah, sitting under a tamarisk tree at the high place. His spear was in his hand, and his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants, listen, man of Benjamin, is Jesse's son going to give all of you fields and vineyards? Do you think he'll make all of you commanders and thousands and commanders of hundreds? That's why all of you have conspired against me. Nobody tells me when my own son makes a covenant with Jesse's son. Notice Saul won't even say David's name. He calls him Jesse's son. None of you cares about me. Wine, 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 right? Or tells me that my son has stirred up my servant to wait in an ambush for me, as is the case today. Saul is growing crazy. He's becoming, as the word would say, paranoid. He's second-guessing every single person around him. Everybody's against me. Nobody's telling me anything. You can obviously begin to see and tell why that is. But as we begin to see the craziness and the paranoia of Saul, it gets worse. And then in verse 9, there is one person, though no one seems to be talking to Saul. There is one person who's willing to talk to Saul. Look at verse 9. And then Doeg, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's servants, answered. He raises his hand and Saul calls on him and says, I saw Jesse's son come to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions. He also gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Well, thank you, teacher's pet Doeg, right? Isn't that exactly how it is? Doeg is looking for power. He's looking for favor in Saul's eyes when everyone else is avoiding him. Doeg, as you remember last week, I gave you that. If you were paying attention, there was a foreshadowing. It mentioned Doeg the Edomite, who was kind of eavesdropping on the conversation there in the tabernacle between David and Ahimelech. He's a spy for Saul in so many ways. And he comes and gives word. He gives word to this crazy, I guess you could say, Stalin-like figure of Saul. Stalin was known to be a paranoid person that if anyone had a hint of trying to take over or take over Stalin's throne or dictatorship, he would have them executed or sent to Siberia. 
One article I was reading said that in two years' time, almost 36,000 officers in the Red Army were either executed, shipped to the gulags, or, or dismissed from service uh, in Stalin there. And then today we have Putin, a similar uh, paranoid megalomaniac over there. And we, we have these people who get into the places of position and they're paranoid. Their, their thirst and hunger for power is so strong that they're willing to do anything to keep hold of their power. And there's spies and espionage even in this story that's going on. And uh, Stalin's kind of own KGB here, this way of Doeg, this person that he's going to use to do his dirty work, gives him news that, that these priests have supposedly become traitors to the king and have given the enemy, number one, provisions. And so Saul is, uh, follows this paranoia and this fear, and he, he pursues an unholy war against these priests. Look at verse 11 and follow this line of thinking with me. The king sent messengers to summon the priest Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and his father's whole family who were priests in the city of Nob. All of them came to the king, and Saul begins to question them, interrogate them. Listen, son of Ahitab, I'm at your service, my lord, he said. Saul asked him, why did you give Jesse's son, again, he doesn't even say his name, why did you conspire against me? You gave him bread, you gave him a sword, and you inquired of God for him so he could rise up against me and wait in ambush, as is the case today. Ahimelech replies to the king, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? He's the king's son-in-law, after all, captain of your bodyguard, honored in your house. Was today the first time I inquired to God for him? Of course not. Please don't let the king make an accusation against your servant or any of my father's family, for your servant didn't have any idea about all this. <laughs> the king said, well, let's in, get a committee together and discuss this, and let's, uh, you know, get, why don't you get a lawyer and we'll work through it? No. <laughs> he doesn't work in it. He doesn't investigate further. He's done. And he says, verse 16, like a crazy man, you will die, Ahimelech, <laughs> you and your father's whole family. And then, verse 17, then the king ordered the guards standing by him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because they sided with David. And they knew he was fleeing, but they didn't tell me. And the king's servants would not lift a hand and execute the, prince, uh, the priests of the Lord. These king's servants are like, uh-uh. So I, I, I'm not listening to you. I know it is not good to kill a priest of God. I'm not, I'm not touching it. But who do you think is going to raise their hand and offer to do this? Verse 18. And so the king said to Doeg, why don't you go and execute the priests? So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priests himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. That means the holy men who were responsible for operating the worship in the tabernacle there, the ephods, the, the, the garments of a priest. Verse 19, he also struck down in Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword, both men and women, infants, nursing babies, oxen, donkeys, and sheep. However, one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, escaped. His name was Abiathar, and he fled to David. Verse 21, Abiathar told David and Saul and had killed the priests of the Lord. And then David said to Abiathar, I knew, I knew it, I knew it. I knew that Doeg the Edomite was there that day, and he was sure to report to Saul. I myself feel or am responsible for the lives of everyone in your father's family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid, for the one who wants to take my life wants to take your life as well. You will be safe with me. So what's so ironic about this story, Saul's original fall, failure was not following the, the directions of God. 
and executing Agag and the Amalekites and a holy war directed by God to punish the Amalekites for their sin. He had his own way to go about it. Now he executes uh, the very priests of God in an ironic and opposite way where God told Saul to commit to conduct holy war against these Gentiles. Now Saul tells a Gentile, this Edomite, to conduct a holy war against God himself. Saul really has come pretty far. He has come far. He wages war, a cleansing of these traitors, really these servants of God. And yet what we see in this horrific situation, this truly gut-curdling situation when you read these, this, what has gone on and how far Saul could come, What's fascinating about this is if you look back with me very quickly in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see that ultimately God had promised that this would come true because of Eli's wickedness and sin. You remember all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we see Eli uh, disobeying God and allowing Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, in the tabernacle to profane the worship of the tabernacle and to blaspheme God and to commit all kinds of wickedness in the tabernacle. And God sent a man of God to tell Eli that your family will be judged. There will not be a person in your family that will live to old age. You will see, as it says, your family will be destroyed. And your line will be cut off except for one who will exist simply and solely to grieve about this grave wickedness. We see this in First uh, Samuel chapter 2. You'll, you'll see a man of God in verse 27 happens this. It says, this happens where you honored your sons and sin more than me. And look, the days are coming. I will cut off your strength and the strength of your forefather's house. God prophesies that these things. And then he says, I will raise up a faithful priest for myself, speaking of, the, of David. And this all comes to pass. And yet it comes to pass in a curious way, one that I have trouble at times reconciling in my mind, that God's promise comes to pass that these priests of Nob are all related to Ahimelech and related to Eli's family line, the line that was promised by God to be destroyed. And Saul is the weapon of destruction. He is the one who fulfills the promise and prophecy of God in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And yet he is a wicked person, a wicked king. And yet God is often seen to, accomp- to, to be uh, sharing his word, to be promising his, his way. And yet we see him using often wicked nations to accomplish his will. We see him using later on the Assyrians and the wicked Babylonians to bring judgment upon his people. I find this challenging at times to reconcile. And yet we know there are things that are, that are true, that God is sovereign and his word will come to pass. His word will come to pass. And ultimately, as we kind of bring this to close, we we know that his word will come to pass. And yet we, as his people, we have a responsibility. And our responsibility is to honor him with our lives and with our choices. And ultimately, today's message is entitled, Choices Have Consequences. David is going to be looking, uh, he wrote Psalm 52. And as I want to look at that kind of as we close, you can turn to Psalm 52 with me. He writes Psalm 52 right after this situation has happened with Doeg. Psalm 52 says God judges the proud. And it's written in the subscript, when Doeg the Edomite went and reported to Saul, telling him that David went to Ahimelech's house. So Psalm 52 is written by David in the context of 1 Samuel chapter 22, speaking of the grave evil and the atrocity that has been done, yet speaking of how God's word will come to pass. You see, 
we, we're, we're left with a situation here where we're, we're, we're forced to kind of think through what's going on, to ultimately pick sides, choose. We're presented with this real choice. Are we following Saul? Are we following David? Are we going to be like a doeg? Are we going to be like the priest who defied Saul? I had a teacher in high school. I've, I've shared this before many times, but the teacher in high school, he was a grave influence in my life. He passed away from cancer at a young age, but he often said a, this famous phrase that stuck with me and many others. He, he is very simple. He said, life is choice. Life is a choice. Life is choices, sorry. Choices have consequences. Make right choices. Life, life is choices. Choices have consequences. Make right choices. And as I consider this passage, I consider the choice that so many of the people were presented with, Saul and Doeg and the priests and the soldiers that are presented with us every single day, the choices that we have in life to make, to pursue the Lord and to follow his way, like David and others, or to pursue Saul or Doeg to feed our flesh, seek power and evil, and thereby wreak destruction upon others. And for us, and I often think of you young people, the choices that are presented before you each and every day that, that often seem small, small choices, small things. Who is it that you associate with? How is it that you choose to tell the truth in this situation or, or tell a, a white lie? These, these small choices that have a profound effect upon your character and your entire future. These consequences are a big deal. And yes, we may have blown it in the past, and we know God gives grace. He gives more grace. But for those who choose to run from God, to foster and harbor your sin, you will find nothing in that way but destruction. Eli ignores his responsibility. He allows his children to profane the holy tabernacle of God, and he pays the price for his sin. Doeg chose to fulfill the lust for bloodshed and power, and to feed his flesh by committing the atrocity of massacring the holy priests of God. Saul chose his own pride as well. He let the quest for power and to be the king on his terms, not God's, to refuse genuine repentance to God, but seek only outward approval and the preservation of himself. This exchange of his heart for an outward show, this leads to his ruin and demise. The fate is evident before us. The way of the wicked is destruction. Yet the path of David, the path of the righteous, the path of the humble will be exalted. Psalm 52 says this. In verse 1, Psalm 52 verse 1 says, Why, why boast about evil, you hero? God's faithful love is constant. Like a sharpened razor, your tongue devises destruction, working treachery. And this is the verse I began the message with. You love evil instead of good. Lying instead of speaking truthfully. And then it says in verse 5, this is why God will bring you down forever. He will uproot you out of the land. Verse 6, the righteous will see and fear. They will derisively say about that hero. Here is the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, taking refuge in his destructive behavior. That's the presentation of the people and the way of the hero of evil, the hero of Saul and Doeg. Their way is the taking refuge in their destructive behavior and their lust for power and riches. But yet, in conversely, we see the way of David. Verse 8, but I am like a flourishing olive tree in the house of God. 
It, it likens us to Psalm 1. Uh, you will be like a tree planted by rivers of water. People who, who walk in that way, their, their leaves will not wither. It says, I trust in God's faithful love forever and ever. Verse 9, I will praise you forever for what you have done in the presence of your faithful people. I will put my hope in your name for it is good. And here we're presented again with this concept, with this belief that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will lead to ruin. And every single one of us, especially today, especially in this moment, are presented with this, with this, with this choice. We, we, can, we can step into this place where destruction is promised for the doegs of the world. You can, you can bet on that. And yet blessing and life everlasting is presented for those who pursue and follow Jesus. And we are presented with that choice, especially in the moment we have before you right now. Every time you come in and you hear God's word, even as I have not preached the best sermon I've ever preached to you today, right? <laughs> or as we try to rate certain things, no matter what that is, you've heard the word of God before you. Any moment in your life, the youngest to the oldest among us here, even you young people especially though, because you're at a formative time in your life, when you hear God's word presented to you, you see a choice made before you. You're forced to make that choice. Whether do you draw further away from God with a step or do you take a step closer to God? Are, are, you, are you like David in this situation or are you going to follow the way of Saul and Doeg? This is a clear depiction. Be like a this choice that is presented to us and I think it's so important for us to evaluate the importance of God's word, the preaching of God's word any second that you have received God's mercy today because you've heard his word you, you've read it. You've, it's been presented to you. It's going into your ears, and you have a choice to allow that to penetrate your heart and to soften you today in this moment to come closer to God and to humble yourself before him and to present yourself as a living sacrifice to be used by him. <laughs> and it's in that place that we find that his love and his grace and his mercy pours out on us. For you're never too far gone for any of these things for the Lord to return back to him, to repent back to him, to come back to Jesus.